Well, good afternoon to have you here. Um, you know the, the acronym GOAT, G-O-A-T, what does it stand for? Greatest of all time. So many would say that the greatest basketball player of all time is not LeBron James, is not Steph Curry. Who am I talking about? Michael Jordan. I grew up in the 90s, so Jordan was definitely, clearly the GOAT. Uh, he won the three-peat. Three-peat is when you win three championships in a row, right? He did that twice in the 90s. In his time, Jordan was the richest professional athlete. He earned... So you guys, some of you guys are watching this Dota competition. Okay. Uh, what's the grand prize? $33 million US, yeah? Jordan earns $30 million per annum at his height. That's $4.34 per second, $260.41 per minute. In the time I've been speaking, he'd kind of already earned $1,000. That's how rich Jordan was. Um, he achieved everything there was left to achieve, really. He retired not once, not twice, but three times because he'd achieved so much, thought there's more, came back, did it again, retired, came back again. Now, when he turned 50, though, in 2013, a few years ago, there was an in-depth ESPN article. And uh, the article basically showed that Michael Jordan, in spite of all he achieved, was not happy. He was not satisfied. He was restless. Uh, let me read part of the article. It says, Jordan's self-esteem has always been, as he said, directly tied to the game. Without it, he feels adrift. Who am I? What am I doing? For the past 10 years since retiring for the third time, he has been running, moving as fast as he could, creating distractions and distance. When the schedule clears, he'll call his office and tell him not to bother him for a month to let him relax and play golf. But then three days later, they'll get another call from him asking if the plane can pick him up, his own plane, and take him someplace because he's restless. So he does his endorsements, he plays hours of golf, hoping to block out thoughts, but then he gets off a boat, comes home to a struggling basketball team that he used to own, he feels his competitiveness kick in, it's almost a chemical thing, and he starts working out at the gym, and he wonders, could he play at 50? What would he do against LeBron James? What if? How can I enjoy the next 20 years without so much of this consuming me, Jordan asks. How can I find peace away from the game of basketball? I wonder this afternoon, if I asked you the question, are you satisfied in life? Truly satisfied? Are you content? At the core of your being, are you happy? Are you at peace? How would you answer that? Would that be a yes? Or would you have to really think about it? Because it's really not that easy, is it? I mean, if Michael Jordan, who had everything isn't satisfied, what well, hope is there for us? Well, today, Jesus is going to offer true satisfaction in John chapter 7. Remember, he says in verse 37, keep uh, that part of the Bible open, by the way, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. He is going to offer true, eternal, unshakable, real satisfaction. He promises to quench your thirst forever. 
And given how hard it is to find satisfaction in life, that is a big, big offer, isn't it? I'm going to pray that he might actually give us what he promises today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you've set out before us such a big promise, almost unbelievable. Some of us have tasted it. Many of us have tasted it and perhaps forgotten about it. There are those of us who are really seeking it. You know where everyone is at this afternoon here today. And I pray that you would speak directly into each of their hearts. Amen. Three quick points. No, they're not quick points. Three points on the inside of your uh, uh, bulletins, if you're following. Uh, let me give you, firstly give you a recap of the Gospel of John. We're into, back into Jesus' uh, uh, life as uh, written by one of his closest disciples, John, a biography of Jesus. Um, John, we started at the beginning of the year. You'll remember John opens with the famous words, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He opens with the Son of God who is fully God, eternally and perfectly the expression of God. That's why he's called the Word, right? Because we express ourselves through words. God expresses himself, in fact, creates through his Word. But this Word, John says, in chapter 1 has become flesh. He's incarnated. He's become a man. So God came into the world. Why did he come? He came to save the world, to offer eternal life. John 3.16, famous verse, right? right? God sends his only son so that we might have eternal life. Now, eternal life in the, uh, in the Gospel of John isn't just the length of life, right? how long it is. It's not just quantity. It's actually quality. Eternal life is life as God intended, life that we were made to enjoy life that is satisfying. That's what he comes to offer. But John chapter 1 again also tells us that though he came into the world, the world that he has made, and though he came to the people that he has made, and especially the Jewish people, the people that were his own, his own did not receive him. And that really is where we're up to in John chapter 7, because even at the end of John chapter 6, where we left off last time, Jesus has just fed the 5,000. He's done this amazing miracle. He's displayed his glory, but yet his own disciples, not the core disciples, not the 12, but his other disciples, a lot of them stopped following him because they couldn't take the kind of things he was saying about himself. And in John chapter 7, we get that even more sharply. We don't have time to read the whole chapter, but he comes to Jerusalem at the height of a Jewish festival, which we'll see in a moment. This chapter has more references to people wanting to kill him than almost any other chapter until the end of John. Right? He comes to his own, but his own reject him. And, and these two chapters, 7 and 8, and 8 will come to next week, is really one long section where at this religious festival, Jesus is now up against opposition from the Jewish authorities. Now, today we won't focus on the opposition. We'll actually come to that next week as we look at John 8. Today, I just want to focus on Jesus' words, the ones that we read in John 7, what he offers. Because I think it's important enough to really pause here this week, before we get into the, 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 the conflict between Jesus and the authority. So John 7, uh, 37, let's read those verses again. Hey, if you have your Bibles, let's read it together. It's only three verses long. Let's, uh, let's all read it out loud. Um, chapter 7, verse 37. All right, let's read with me. On the last, let's go, and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, 
whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Now, Jesus is really making a point at this announcement. Why? Because the setting is important. Um, We read that he is at a festival, and on the last and greatest day of a festival. What festival are we talking about? Well, if you skip to chapter uh, verse 2, right early in the beginning of this chapter, if you glance there, it's called the Festival of Tabernacles. Tabernacles, fancy word for tents. Right? Tent, like tents you go camping in. Uh, This is one of the three major festivals for Jews even today. And so at the Festival of Tabernacles, they would celebrate it by putting up tents. Well, they're they're more like booths. So sometimes called the Festival of Booths because they were to live in them. Now, why would they put up booths or tents or tabernacles? It's, It's because part of their history was 40 years wandering around in the desert. God rescued them from Egypt under Moses. They spent 40 years living in booths, in tents, as they were making their way to the promised land. And this was to celebrate, to remember that. It's a little bit like on Australia Day, sometimes we get these tall ships yeah, into Sydney Harbour to remind us that in 1788, the white people came and invaded the land. Well, it depends on your perspective, right? But we're supposed to celebrate Australia by remembering our history somehow. And it's a little bit like that, that the booths, like the tall ships, to remind people of their experience. Now, in this festival, for, for seven days, it's a seven-day festival, and every single day, there's another part of the festival that's really special. Um, the, the, the priest would bring water, and it would be, scoop water in, in, in special vessels from the pool of Siloam, which is a special pool just outside of the city wall, and they would bring water from the pool into the temple and pour it out on the altar. And that would happen every day as a procession for seven days. And then on the last day, where Jesus makes this announcement, the procession gets more fancy. It's like the highlight, the climax, this water being brought in. Why water? Well, again, it's the desert wandering experience, right? I mean, they're not only living in tents and living in booths. In the desert, God provided water for his people miraculously. He sustained them. Water is a symbol of that, as it is also a symbol of life. So you get Jesus' words in this setting, right? The last and greatest day of this festival, there's booths everywhere, there's water being carried, and look what he says, right? If you're thirsty, come to me. What's he saying? He's in effect saying, I am the Lord. I'm the Lord, Yahweh, who in the wilderness protected, fed, quenched my people's thirst for 40 years. And I can do the same for anyone who believes in me. And that's not just for Jews. Right? That's in effect what he was saying. Now, I talked about Michael Jordan to begin with, about how dissatisfied he is. I don't want to just point the finger at Michael Jordan. I think there's three experiences in my life that shows, I think, how hard satisfaction it is to find even in my own life. Uh, What are the three experiences? They're for me, but they might ring true for you too. The first one I call the post-purchase hollowness. The second one I call the post-achievement stress. Third one I call the post-holiday blues. You want to hear what they are? Okay, let's go. First one. Post-purchase hollowness. You know, you, you spent ages looking at something, the latest or greatest, whatever. Usually, for me, it's a gadget, or a few years ago, it was like a bike. <laughs> and you've been looking forward to getting it for ages, and then you finally get it, right? And it's like cool, and you, and you spend the next little while just fussing over it, setting it up, just really touching it, playing with it, taking photos of it. 
But then very soon, you get that hollow feeling, don't you? Have you been, been there before? Like you've just spent all this time looking forward to it. You get it. Finally, it's like, oh, it's a little bit hollow. Is this it? And if that's not how you feel a little bit afterwards, it will be how you feel six months later when the next latest and greatest comes out. Because as Robbo knows, working for Apple, whatever gadget you have that's the latest only takes yeah, six months to a year before the next greatest thing comes out. And then you're looking at your thing and then the next thing coming out and you're feeling even more hollow. Post-purchase hollowness, very hard to be satisfied. Number two, post-achievement stress. Have you ever achieved something that you've aimed for, for a long time, a goal, uh, a career goal maybe, or a fitness goal maybe, or an academic goal if you're studying, even a big purchase like, you know, just buying that house finally. But then after you get it, what do you have? You have post-achievement stress. Why? It's stressful maintaining it, isn't it? Your career now demands more of you. Your fitness, well, you don't look like Ryan Chung. You look like me if you don't keep maintaining it. Although I never look like Ryan Chung. That's the difference. You know, stay in the top of the class. That's hard work. You get that house. But now what have you got? Mortgage stress. Right? Post-achievement stress. Thirdly, post-holiday blues. You know what this is like, right? Now you go on the perfect holiday, and it's so great. Like a few years ago when I long service leave, it's just the best in New Zealand. It's a month, 28 days in a camper van all around the South Island. But they never last long enough. You know what's like the perfect holiday? The better the holiday, the worse it is. The last two days of the holidays. You know that feeling, right? The dread starts creeping in. Because you're thinking, I'm going to have to go back. Right? And it gets worse and worse over the next 48 hours until you get back and you just feel so miserable. And then you spend... And it's worse because you're sorting out your photos and posting Throwback Thursday photos on Facebook. Or for you, it's probably Throwback Every Day for the next month. And every time you look at a photo, you just get sadder and sadder. Right? The best holiday, but you're not satisfied as so you have to look forward to the next holiday. Except the next holiday, if it's good, you're going to get the post-holiday blues again. We're so hard to satisfy, aren't we? You know what C.S. Lewis said? He said, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only explanation must be that I was made for another world. And he is absolutely right. And that's what Jesus comes to offer. So how does he do that? How does Jesus offer it? How can Jesus give what nothing else in this world can give? True, lasting, thirst-quenching satisfaction. Well, remember verse 38? Let's look at it again. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Okay, you'll, you'll get your thirst quenched, actually not even by drinking, but there'll be water coming out of you and it'll be overflowing and it will not stop. But what does he mean? How does that happen? Next verse explains it. By this, he meant the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the thirst quencher is the Holy Spirit. Those who come to Jesus will receive the Holy Spirit and it's the Holy Spirit that will well up into an everlasting river of satisfying water. 
So we need to know who the Spirit is, don't we? And how can He give that? So who is the Holy Spirit? I'm up to point two, by the way. Um, the God of the Bible is one God, but three persons from all eternity. It's called the Trinity. One God, but God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One God, but three persons. All equally and fully God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are one in being or essence and one in purpose, but three persons. I know that's hard to understand, but it's at the core of biblical belief and experience. It's so important, not the least because of what Jesus says here. Now, in John's gospel, here's how it works. They're all involved, by the way. God the Father sends God the Son into the world to save the world. Jesus, the Son, after he finishes work and returns to heaven to the Father, he asks the Father to send the Holy Spirit, God the third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit, to now come into the people that he has redeemed, that he has saved, come into us so that he can continue the Son's work in and through us. God, the whole God, the one God in three persons, all involved in our salvation. That's the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is looking forward to, after he dies and rises and goes back to heaven, how the Holy Spirit will be poured out. And by the way, that's where we are now. He's gone back to heaven. He's poured out the Holy Spirit. And if you're one of his, you've been given the Holy Spirit so that your deepest longings and thirst can be satisfied. That's who the Holy Spirit is, but how does he do this? Well, this is not the first time or the last time Jesus will talk about the work of the Spirit in the Gospel of John. So we're going to look at other parts of John's Gospel to actually answer the question, well, how it is that the Holy Spirit can, can be like that river of life, that water fountain that gushes and never ends. The first place I want to take you is John chapter 3. You don't have to turn to it, but you might know Jesus has a famous conversation with a religious leader of his day, a man called Nicodemus. And in John chapter 3, on the overhead, Jesus says these famous words. Jesus answered Nicodemus, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You shouldn't be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. First point, how can the Spirit satisfy? He can satisfy because when you are given the Holy Spirit, He gives you a fresh start. He remakes you from the inside out. You are born again. Now, I don't know if you uh, know about this particular Chinese vlogger or streaming live streamer. They're pretty famous. They earn a lot of money just from people watching them. A few recently, I can't remember how long ago, um, there was a glitch and the vlogger was exposed behind all of the filters as her. Crazy, isn't it? Like, are they even the same person? Yes. All right, some of you have apps that do this. You've seen it, right? The face app, you can be old, you can be young, you can be male, you can be female, you can look like that. And it's really sad, isn't it? Because... Our image-obsessed world is so dissatisfied and insecure that we will digitally alter our appearance. And this is what Instagram is thriving on, those influences. Alter our appearance to be more accepted. But the problem, of, of course, is you can't actually change the real you. I mean, look, 
even if she did get plastic surgery and change that or whatever, it still doesn't change the real her, right? That's just appearances. If you're unhappy and you're dissatisfied, that comes from inside. And you can't change the outside to change the inside, can you? Now, I don't want you to look at that and judge. It's easy to, you know. It's pretty disturbing, but... But I want to say, we're all like this, aren't we? I mean, what... Our face filters are other external markers, aren't they? What's your face filter? Is it your possessions? Is it your status? Is it your career? Is it your relationships? Is it your achievements? Is it your friendships? All of these things that we hide behind present an image of us that's not really us. Or we try to hide behind them because we think by having them, it'll change the real us. But actually, they can't change us at our core, can they? They can't erase our histories. They can't take away the ugliness we feel in our hearts. They can't remove the baggage of our hurts. They can't feel our insecurities. They can't make us truly happy. Jesus, though, through the Holy Spirit, offers a new start and a new you. Unlike Instagram, which is about changing the outside, Jesus changes you from the inside and lets that flow outwards. See, if you come to Jesus, you can have your past and all your mistakes and all your baggage dealt with, forgiven, erased. You can have a new start. And not only that, you can have a new heart When a person becomes a Christian, they're born again. They get new desires, a new desire to love God and love others and love what is beautiful and pure and holy and good. And He gives you new identity, a new way of seeing the world, a new way of seeing yourself, and so a new security. That's the essence of being a Christian. It's not about morality, good bad, avoiding sin, doing the right thing. It's about new birth. You get born again. Now, I wonder as I talk to you this afternoon, whether you are born again. Have you experienced that? Do you know what that's like? Because it's not just to the people who may be here, new, new newish to church, maybe you're investigating Christianity, that that maybe you're thinking, well, clearly... I don't have this. I'm, I'm really new to this stuff. I, first time I might have heard of it. No, no. You might have heard of it. You might be a regular at church. You might have grown up in church and yet not be born again. Remember who Jesus is talking to in John 3. Nicodemus, a religious leader of his day. He'd be like a church elder. All right? It's possible to be a Christian for so long and yet not be genuinely born again. Do you have it? Do you know it? Because it is truly satisfying. Well, the second thing the Holy Spirit offers is an identity that's grounded in love. This new birth gives you a new love that you enter into. Um, To that, I'm going to take you to John chapter 14. The last night before Jesus' death, by the way, is 14, 15, 16 is the most stuff on the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of John. If you want to read more, go back, uh, go to them. We'll come to them eventually next year when we preach on it. Jesus says to his disciples, if you love me, keep my commands. Remember, he's about to go away. He's about to die, rise again, go back to heaven. 
And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Holy Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept Him because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. But you know Him, for He lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. How will Jesus, after he goes back to heaven, after he's completed his work on the cross, how will he show himself to his followers? How will he not leave them as orphans? Well, he says there, because he's going to give them the Holy Spirit. See what the Holy Spirit does? As the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of Jesus' followers, we enter into an eternal relationship of love right at the heart of the Trinity. You see what he says in verse 20? On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Right? you, you that's the close relationship of intimacy and love. And, and verse 21, the one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. The Holy Spirit does that. He brings you right into a relationship of deepest love within the heart of God Himself. The uh, early church theologian, St. Augustine, he uses this way of understanding the Trinity. The Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, you can understand as the lover, the beloved, and the love. Let me explain. God the Father is the one who loves. God the Son is the one that is loved. So the Father loves the Son, the lover and the beloved. Who's God the Holy Spirit? Well, the Holy Spirit is the love. The love of God, Father for Son, is so strong that the love Himself is a person. The bond of love between Father and Son is the Holy Spirit. Now, it's not a perfect illustration. It's not one that the Bible uses. But it's a nice way of seeing it. But definitely, you can see that hinted at here. That because the Holy Spirit is going to be in His followers, we get drawn into that very relationship from eternity between the Father and the Son because the Holy Spirit is the love, the bond of love. So when you have the Holy Spirit, you are drawn right into the very love between the Father and the Son from all eternity until all eternity. And that is what's so satisfying the Holy Spirit because we know, don't we, that there is nothing close to satisfaction in this life that doesn't have to do with love. The most satisfaction you will get is not stuff you buy, not even the holidays you go on. It's love. But there's always going to be limits, aren't there, to the love you experience in this life, even the closest ones, even your marriage relationships, even your family, even your best friends. But a love relationship with God, on the other hand, well, here is one who not only loves you, but He knows you. He knows you warts and all. And yet you never have to be afraid that He will reject you because He knows you. He knows you and yet loves you. And He will never turn away from you. And here is God who will never leave your side because He is in you by the Holy Spirit. In the mountains and the valleys, He will never leave you. And He will promise to take you all the way into the eternity, into the new creation. And so to be loved and treasured and cared for in an intimate relationship with Him, 
There's nothing more satisfying. Every time you look for love from another human being, it's an echo of the love that God intended us all to have with Him. And you get that when you have the Holy Spirit. New birth, new love, lastly, new worship. John chapter 7 is not the first time Jesus offers living water and talks about the living water and links it to the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 4, Jesus meets a woman at the well. She is a Samaritan woman. Racially, religiously, socially, the other. Rejected. She is a woman with a sad sexual history. She's had like five husbands. She's rejected by her own people even. She's a woman sorely in need of new birth, sorely in need of love, sorely in need of satisfaction. And ultimately, Jesus says what she needed was worship. So the, the conversation is a really interesting one. If you haven't read it before, John 4, you can listen to a sermon. We preached on it um, earlier this year. Jesus turns the conversation about husbands and, and, and uh, where, where is the right mountain and Jews and Samaritans. And then he turns it to be about worship. Look at what Jesus says. Chapter 4, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit. And his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. It's really strange because here's a woman, obviously, with so many needs that she was trying to satisfy in all these different ways. For her, mainly finding other husbands, men to love, men to um, find comfort in, men who've rejected her again and again and again. And it's not immediately obvious how, why Jesus talks about worship. What does that have to do with the woman's problem? What does that have to do with her deepest longing for satisfaction? What does worship have to do with our deepest longings for satisfaction? Well, then you understand that when the Bible talks about worship, it's not talking about statues and temples and religions. It's not talking about worship music. See, when the Bible talks about worship, it's ultimately about what is number one in your life. Right? We're all worshipers. It's not whether we were. Atheists are worshipers too. It's what's ultimate in your life, what's number one, what you can't live without, what motivates and drives you and actually then forms your identity. God created us to worship Him and Him alone because God made us for Himself, as, as I think Augustine said. Right? God has made us for Himself and our hearts are restless until we find rest in Him. We were made to have Him in the center of our being, Him to be the ultimate, live for Him. Because, as I said in the last point, being loved by Him, loving Him in return, that love relationship is what we were meant to have, to satisfy, to be our core identity. And here's the reason why deep down inside we are restless and anxious and dissatisfied and unhappy is because so often what we really worship is not God. It's a God replacement. And they're often good things that He gives us, but we just kind of make good things into God things. And the Bible calls them idols in addition to the statues you might worship, okay? And by the way, um, I come from Taiwan. Taiwan has the most, I think, little shrines per capita. Is that right, Marshall? This is a very religious, idol-worshipping country. But you know what? Every idol, the statue kind, actually points to a greater idol, the deep heart kind. Did you know that? Now, if you meet people who worship idols, and I you know, grew up with my grandfather who's passed away, had one shrine. It's not the idol of 
you know, the, the, the Chinese ancestor or the Buddha or whatever. It's actually what that idol offers. And what the idol offers is actually the true idol. So they offer jail sticks and ask for good luck and pray over the idol. But what are they asking for? Success, material blessing, health. What is their idol? Not that. It's what that is supposed to provide, okay? In the West, we don't have the statues. We still have the idols. But you see, no idol can deliver on its promise, can it? And in fact, you are most anxious, stressed, unhappy, dissatisfied, angry even when these idols let you down or they're threatened. If you find yourself so churned up over the prospect, the fear of losing something that's the most precious to you at the core of your being, it's very hard to manage, isn't it? Whatever your idol is, right? If it's to be loved by the perfect wife, husband, boyfriend, girlfriend, child, whatever, anytime that is under threat, your deepest fears are coming true, you will find life unlivable because you were never made to be loved like that by another human being and they will always let you down. See, idols can't satisfy. And so Jesus offers another way, true worship, true satisfaction is to come to Him and you will get a spring of water that actually does overflow with satisfaction. Why? Because God will turn you around and reorientate you to worship the one you were created to worship, to find satisfaction in the one you were supposed to find satisfaction in, to be loved by the one who alone can satisfy you with His love. The Holy Spirit does that. New birth, new love, new worship. How many of you here have done any sort of endurance exercise? So endurance exercise like marathons or, you know, long, for me, it's like long bike rides or um, long hikes. Anyone ever done things like that? Tried it? Come on, just put up your hand. Don't, don't be shy. Yeah, some of you have done that. Now, you'll know if you've done endurance sports that um, by the time you show obvious symptoms of dehydration, it's probably too late. I mean, you generally won't die if you have water, but it, it, it's going to affect your performance big time. So in cycling, we call it hitting the bonk, right? You will just be riding, and by the time you realize, oh, I'm dehydrated, it's too late. Even if you try and hydrate yourself then, you're going to like just not be able to go on. Right? It's probably the same in a marathon. You have to keep hydrating yourself constantly in endurance exercise. Maintain fluids throughout. Now, here's the thing. When it comes to spiritual dehydration, because that's what Jesus is offering, being thirsty... Now, there are some people here, you realize, okay, I am thirsty. I know it. I need it. I need a drink spiritually. But you know what? I reckon a lot of us here do not know it. All right? You're unaware that actually you are dehydrated. You might not know it. You, you might just feel, okay, I'm a little bit restless at times. But you know, generally, life is pretty good. I'm satisfied with how it's going. Okay, there are some times I wonder, is this it? Sometimes I find myself frustrated or, or, or um, uh, the fear or anxiety kind of surprises me of how strongly they come. But really, I think everything is going okay. Uh-uh. All of those are little early warning signs that actually spiritually you are dehydrated. Even if you're unaware of it. And it's just a matter of time before your spiritual dehydration catches up. So you may not be aware that you need what Jesus is offering today. And you may be a Christian and really need it. So I'm going to, my final point is, well, how? How can you get it? 
The Holy Spirit offers all this. How can you get it? Well, let's fast forward to the end of John. Jesus is crucified and he's on the cross. And and look what happens here. Now is the day of preparation. The next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have their legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who'd been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they didn't break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. That's a curious little note. John is the only one that writes about the piercing of Jesus' side and the flow of blood and water. Now, in the symbolism of John, given all he said about Jesus offering living water, this is not just a medical thing that he's noting, is it? Jesus is on the cross, and water flows out of his side when he dies, or after he dies. It flows out with his blood. What's it trying to say? It's saying, look, that thirst-quenching, satisfying living water that he is offering comes from his death. His death that took your place so that your sins could be paid for, your guilt and your shame dealt with, your slate wiped clean, so that you can have a new birth as your old you is dead with him on the cross and he gives you a new you. And you can have a new love, a relationship with God because he takes that barrier of sin and he takes it away on the cross by dying for it so that you can have uninhibited love with God. And he gives you the opportunity to worship God with a new worship in a free, open way. No more temple. No more priests. Just Jesus. So how can you have your thirst quenched? How can you be satisfied? Well, John's answer is you you look to the cross. You trust in Jesus' death for you. And, And he doesn't just mean intellectual belief. Right? Jesus says, if you believe in me, but it's much more than just, yeah, I believe it's true. It's about trusting. It's about depending. It's about relying. It's about surrendering. And there are some of you here who may still need to do this. That is, you're not yet a follower of Jesus, and you need to give your life to Jesus. And he today is offering you, for the first time, real satisfaction. And today you can ask him for forgiveness. Follow Him as Savior and Lord and be given that living water for the first time. You can walk out of here with God in you, the Holy Spirit. But most of you have done that. But you might be wondering, why then am I still so restless, so unhappy? I'm a Christian, but why am I still so dissatisfied. Let me suggest to you that maybe what you need to do is just remember the cross. I mean, think about this. If the Son of God had to die to give us thirst-quenching water, if it was on the cross that the living water flowed out, what does that tell you? It tells you there was no other way. That's what it tells you. I mean, look, if God, if there was any other way for you to have satisfaction in life other than God sacrificing his own son to die a cruel criminal's death on the cross, don't you think God would have done it? 
If God had to go to the extremes of dying for you and me to give you satisfaction, then that must be the only way, huh? Which means you cannot say, I want Jesus to be my water, but I'll also supplement that with water from my own bottle. It just doesn't work like that, does it? I just need a drink. If Jesus had to die to satisfy you, then he... He and He alone can satisfy. And that's where our problem is, Christians, followers of Jesus. If you are deep down inside still unhappy and dissatisfied, I'm not talking about the kind of stuff that, you know, we all hear stress, anxiety, especially if, you know, a couple of weeks ago I preached on anxiety, preached on grief. Right? Those things happen. Yes, life goes through valleys. But even in the valleys, if at the core of your being you cannot find that anchor, that joy, that hope, that satisfaction, then there is something, something really wrong, isn't there? And if that's you, then it's time to take stock and look and think what's happened. Pastor Tim Keller says this. And really, this is the biggest problem, I think, of of, of Christianity in, in comfortable Western societies. It's shallow. Shallow Christian identities explain why professing Christians can be racists and greedy materialists, addicted to beauty and pleasure or filled with anxiety and prone to overwork, all this comes because it is not Christ's love, but the world's power, approval, comfort, and control that are the roots of our self-identity. Put it in the ways we've been looking at. It's not Jesus' love that you are drinking from, but power, approval, comfort, control that you are substituting as water. See, some here, you've tasted the satisfying, thirst-quenching power of the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying you're not saved. You've experienced it. You've experienced new birth. You know what it's like to be loved by God. You know what it's like to worship Jesus. You remember how wonderful it was. You remember how wonderful it was. Past tense. But if you're honest with yourself... Right now, where you are now, that's not you. It's not your experience. You're tired, you're anxious, you're restless, you're unhappy, you're frustrated, you're disappointed, you're envious, you're angry, you're dissatisfied. Why? Is it that Jesus has become less thirst-quenching? He's become less satisfying? No, no, it's not. It's just that you've drifted away from Him being your only source of living water. God says in Jeremiah, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dug their own cisterns, water jars, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Is this you? You're no longer satisfied in Jesus because you're no longer coming to Him for your thirstiness. And those idols that you said no to, to worship Him, well, they've just started to creep back in. These broken cisterns of, of what Keller says is power, approval, comfort, control. Or maybe for you it's relationships and love and acceptance and intimacy 
You've gone to them now. It may have been slow. Usually it's slow. They've crept in. They satisfy for a while. Right? You've drifted away from Jesus. So you go to them. And by the way, these idols may even have crept in beneath the surface of a very outwardly devout life. You, you still come to church. In fact, you might be serving God in leadership. You minister to others. You read your Bible. You pray. But you know in your heart of hearts that, you, that, 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 that Jesus is no longer at the center of it. In fact, I'll tell you just as a confession, ministry, especially full-time ministry, but any sort of ministry, right, is a great avenue to feed idols. Your idol is power, control, approval, affection, even comfort. You can get all those by becoming a pastor. You can. It's very scary, isn't it? You may have all the outward signs, but it's not about Jesus anymore. Today, God might be wanting to do some serious business with you. It may be time to repent and turn back to him, to surrender those idols again. Let's stand. We're going to respond. Stand. I'll get um, Jason to come up. Um, what I'm going to do is this. I'm going to pray a prayer. And this prayer is really for, for anyone. It could be that you want to, as I said, you, you, you're not yet a follower of Jesus, but today you're thinking, yeah, I want that. I, I want to become a Christian. This prayer will do it too. But particularly also, if you are a follower of Jesus and you've just drifted, and you know God is calling you back. He's like, why? Why do you keep going to those broken cisterns? Why? This is why you're unhappy. This is why you're not satisfied. This is why you're restless. And, and today you've realized, yeah, I've been dehydrated for a long time. I didn't know it. And you want to come back to him? Look at the words of this prayer. I'm going to pray it. And if you're in your heart of hearts, you're like, yeah, I, I need to pray that today. Then I want you to pray it with me. Don't just do it because, you know, only God will know if, if, if you want to. But if you can pray these words, it's, it's a very yearning, desperate, personal prayer. It's a prayer of refocus. It's a prayer of repentance. Then pray with me, yeah? Why don't we bow? Stay standing. Just bow your heads. And if you want to pray it with me, I'll, I'll say it slowly. You can talk to God. Jesus, I am thirsty. Come quench my thirst. Jesus, I am empty. Come and fill me. Jesus, I am hungry. Come satisfy me. Only you, only you can give me rivers of living water that overflows. Come fill me again, Holy Spirit. Please, Lord Jesus, you're all that I have and you're all that I need. Amen. If you prayed that, 
why don't you take a seat? If you prayed that, just take a seat. Everyone else just stay standing. If you prayed that, take a seat. Oh, gosh, there's no one left. Okay. Well, everyone else take a seat then. I was going to say, if you pray that, take a seat, and those who are standing around you will, will, will pray for you. Um, it's great, though. It means that we all, so many of us, have realized this is what I needed. Um, so how are we going to do this? Um, why don't you pray with each other, like just with the people around you? You know, don't, don't chat about it. Just, just pray for each other, pray with each other, pray in response, okay? Um, we don't have long to do it, just for the next five minutes, just... Pray what's on your heart for each other. Yeah, why don't we do that? Why don't we do that? Pray, pray with each other, and then, um, and then we'll sing, and then we'll take communion.